Lord Jesus, you said, let him who has ears hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. And I pray tonight, Lord, as we look to the third letter, that you wrote uh, of those seven letters to the churches in Asia, that, Lord, we would hear what you would have to say to this church. And I speak not only, Father, of the Bridge Fellowship, but, but of this church in this age. For all of us as believers who fellowship under the name of Jesus, that we would hear. Uh, that tonight the, uh, the words of Scripture and the teaching that you illuminate to our hearts, Father, would be heard and acted upon. Father, you said, blessed is he who reads and he who hears and he who heeds the words that are written in this book. And we pray that that blessing would extend especially, Father, as we heed these words as we live them out, apply them to our lives. God, I'm so thankful for my brothers and sisters here who are willing to put up with me and my antics at times, my eccentricities, and I pray that none of that, Lord, would ever get in the way of just the pure reading and study of your word, that, that, that what we do tonight, that what will stay and what will remain, Father, will be your words and not mine, will be your teaching. And the things that you would implant on our hearts directly from you, Father. And all the rest of the stuff, Father, I just pray that it would fall away. And we would be left hearing from Jesus. We know, Lord, that as these letters were written, as a, as a lover would write a letter. We know, Jesus, you are the lover of our souls. We are not worthy of this. We are blown away by it. Your grace, your mercy is so overwhelming. And as we consider this church, both this church presently in this age and the church in the age we'll be looking at and the original historical church the letter is written to in Pergamum, I pray, Father, that you would remind us of your great love and help us to pursue you with all that we are. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1, verse 19. Revelation 1, verse 19, you may recall, this is the divine outline. It's one of the great things about this book. You don't have to guess. You don't have to wonder how it's broken down. We have the outline given to us. Jesus made the outline clear when he first appeared to John. You may recall in chapter 1, John is on the island of Patmos. He has been exiled there by Diocletian, the emperor. And as John is there, he receives this phenomenal revelation that he writes down, the, the book that we're studying. And as he is about to write this book, as Jesus says, write this book and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea, then John turns and he sees Jesus glorified, this amazing vision. Overwhelming. We studied that. We looked at it. The person of Jesus in his glorified state. And after that, Jesus said to John, in Revelation 1.19, the divine outline, he said, John, write the things which you have seen, that is, the person of Jesus Christ, and the things which are, 
That is, the church age, what was going on right then at the time of John. And finally, the things which will take place after these things. We talked about after these things, the Greek phrase, metatauta. Keep that in mind because we'll come back to it when we start into chapter 4 in just a few weeks now. Uh, that will become a critical phrase for us. Metatauta in the Greek, after these things. But right now, we're in the middle of the things which are, actually, that's not the case. You and I are at the tail end of the things which are. We are at the tail end of the church age. As you'll see, I think, more clearly as we go further into the churches. But in our study, we're somewhere in the middle. The church at Pergamum. One of seven churches, but seven not just historical churches as we talked about, but seven eras. Seven epochs in church history that again become even more clear as we go along. We've looked at two of the churches... And those two churches, not only being historical, we've looked at them prophetically. Now, they're not prophetic for us because they're past tense. They were prophetic to John at the time he received them. But we looked at Ephesus. Ephesus being the darling church. The name Ephesus means desired one. Desired one or desirable one or darling. It's, it's a, 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 a way of referring to that first love, that first century church, A.D. 30 to 100. The letter to the church in Ephesus applies prophetically to the church in A.D. 30 to 100. And then the next church, Smyrna, the persecuted church, which we studied last week, A.D. 100 to 312, where we talked about 283 years of tribulation and persecution. The Lord chose to birth His church into hard times, times of tribulation. And it was the best thing He could possibly do. Because in those times and under that persecution and in faced with those tremendous trials, incredible martyrdoms, the church grew. The church grew. As we read last week, the blood of martyrs is seed. And the martyrs of the early church, upwards of 7 to 10 million Christians that were martyred in those first 283 years, the church grew. The Bible began to get copied and passed around and read as the word began to, to be shared. The church grew. But now we head into the third church. We actually had 20 miles inland from Smyrna to Pergamum. And to that time in church history when the church, after all this growth in all this persecution, the church begins her downward spiral. Because it was here in Pergamum that the church began to meld in both the politics and the paganism of the day, both historically and prophetically. Now let me remind you quickly, you may recall that in each of these letters, Jesus follows a pattern of writing. He follows a pattern. He kind of takes you through a process. He begins with a partial revelation of himself, goes on to a positive affirmation, then he goes to a corrective accusation, a practical recommendation and finally an eternal motivation and we'll continue to use that as the outline as we go on into the church in Pergamum beginning in Revelation chapter 2 verse 12 Revelation 2.12 and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. Because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who keep teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. You also have some who, in the same way, hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. 
Therefore, repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give him some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone, and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. Pergamum. Pergamum. That historical place along the Roman postal route in Asia Minor, which is again Turkey of today. Pergamum. And Jesus begins with the partial revelation. Remember, in each of these letters, he says something about himself. That you don't get the full picture of Jesus without the whole church. All of the seven letters put together, then you see that full picture of Jesus. But the partial, uh, sorry, the partial revelation in verse 12 is, Jesus is the one who has the sharp, two-edged sword. And you may notice immediately, right off the bat with Pergamum, we have a dynamic change in the picture of Jesus. His partial revelation to Ephesus was the one who walks among the golden lampstands. Well, that sounds good. Jesus among the churches. Jesus moving in and among and with us. That's what we want to hear. Jesus is there with the churches in the lampstands. And then he spoke to Smyrna as the first and the last, the one who is dead and has come to life. Man, he's speaking to the persecuted church and saying, I'm with you. I died. I've come back to life. This is, again, a good thing, an encouraging thing. But then he comes to Pergamum and he is brandishing a sword. I am the one with the sharp, two-edged sword. And Pergamum, sit up and pay attention. For what does a sword do? A sword cuts. A sword divides. And Jesus is coming to Pergamum to divide. To divide. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 tells us the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Jesus comes to Pergamum. The The sword is unsheathed because Pergamum, Pergamum is... The compromising church. The compromising church. We've had the suffering church, the persecuted church with Smyrna. And the darling desirable church with Ephesus. And now we come to Pergamum, the compromising church. Interesting, because it is in Pergamum where we see a mixture taking place. A marriage, if you will, between Christianity and paganism. It was going on in the city of Pergamum with the church at Pergamum. The the paganism was beginning to seep into the church and the church began to marry itself to it. And Jesus comes to this marriage ready to divide. Interesting because he says in Matthew 19.6, What God has joined together, let no man separate. But the marriage at Pergamum between church and state, church and paganism, gang, it is not a marriage made in heaven. It has never been a marriage made in heaven. It is a marriage made in hell. And you may want to jot this down, even the name Pergamum. The name Pergamum, from the Greek word per. Per meaning objectionable or opposing, and gamos, gamos meaning marriage. Pergamum is the church of the objectionable marriage, the compromising church. Objectionable marriage. What does this mean? We'll see as we go on. Verse 13, he says, I know where you dwell, giving now number two in our outline, the positive affirmation. I, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, or my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. 
He says, I understand. I, I know in Pergamum you are where Satan's throne is. What do you mean where Satan's throne is, Lord? Three things that bear this out. Number one, historically, the city of Pergamum was considered by the Greeks to be the birthplace of Zeus. And in the city of Pergamum, as Jesus says, I know you are where Satan's throne is. In the city of Pergamum was a massive throne for, for Zeus. A massive stone statue, a stone throne where Zeus supposedly resided. They were into all kinds of gods in Pergamum. You may have heard of, um, of Thor. Thor is actually the Norse god compared to the Roman god Jupiter, the god of thunder. Thor is the god of thunder. And Thor, it said at times, would, would ride through the heavens on his, on his great steed. And he'd, he'd hammer his hammer and that would cause the thunder. That was the Greek or the Norse explanation for, thun, for thunder. And Thor would ride through the heavens and he would call out, I am Thor! I am Thor! And at one point, his horse turned around and said, If you're Thor, get a battle, Billy. <laughs> battle, Billy. So Pergamum was the, was the place of the throne of Zeus. This is where Zeus was supposed to have been born, according to the Greeks. And it's interesting, Jesus connecting right to this city. I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Satan's throne? I thought it was Zeus's throne. Same thing. Because there's only one God. There aren't multiple gods. And any other God, Jesus would say, is an imposter. Is a setup. Is not me. So Pergamum was the birthplace of Zeus. And number two, that's uh, interesting about this Satan's throne, Pergamum was also home to the Babylonian mystery religion. Babylonian paganism, the oldest pagan religion in history, and we'll talk more about that in a minute. And number three, Pergamon, Pergamon was also home to a temple that was built for Octavius, Octavius Caesar. And once again, as in Smyrna we talked about last week, the people were compelled to come forward in this place, be handpicked out of the crowd, and offer incense of sacrifice to Caesar, saying, proclaiming, Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. And so Jesus says, hey, church in Pergamum, where you've got the throne of Zeus, where the Babylonian paganism resides, where once a year you have to bow down to Caesar. You don't, church, but people do. I know where you live, and here's what you're doing right. You live in the hell mouth of pagan religiosity and politics, but you still hold fast to my name. Ezekiel chapter 39, verse 25, speaking of the future restoration of Israel, tells us, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob, and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous for my holy name. He says, You hold fast to my name. You hold fast to my name. Exodus 34, 14. You shall not worship any other God. For the Lord, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. Why? Why is God so jealous that he would even say his name is jealous? Because God understands something. It is only by his name that a man can be saved. Only by his name. There is no other name. So if you want to claim Zeus, if you want to claim another God, you can do that. Sure, you have that freedom, but there is no name by which a person can be saved. God's jealousy is our very salvation. Oh, he's not just jealous about his name, but he knows that without his name, we don't have a hope. 
This is wonderful, but Revelation 22, verse 4, at the end of the book, John writes at the close that we will see his face and his name, his name will be on our foreheads. Because no other name can save. Now, speaking of names, there's, there's a man who is specifically named in Scripture. It's always interesting to, to consider and think about people whose names make it into the Bible. A few weeks back, we talked about a couple of names, Yodia and Syntyche. And Paul said to these two ladies, can you two just get along? And all the way since then, the last 2,000 years, when you come across Yodia and Syntyche, they're known as the two biddies who could not get along. And that's, that's their history, but not Antipas. Antipas. Listen to what he says. You did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Antipas. Who is Antipas? Antipas was, we're told by Tertullian, a dentist physician. Dentist physician who lived there in Pergamum. And on that day when the people were compelled to offer incense to Caesar, they would pick them randomly out of the crowd. And Antipas was chosen out of the crowd and brought up before the crowd and told to say that Caesar is Lord and pinch some incense and offer it on the fire. And Antipas refused. He refused. The procurator at the time came to Antipas and said, look, you put something on the fire or you're going to die here. And Antipas still refused. And he said, don't you understand? If you refuse, Antipas, the whole world is against you. And Antipas said, then I am against the whole world. I am against the whole world. Interesting, his name, Antipas, Antipas, means against all. Against all. Antipas is against the world. He would not stand with the world. Even if the whole world was against him, even if he was the only Christian standing, he would not bow the knee to Caesar. He would not offer the incense. Even if the whole world is against me, Antipas said, I will stand for Christ. Jesus said in John 15, 18, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world... The world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. What does it take to be like Antipas, to be that faithful witness? It takes the willingness to stand for Christ, even against the whole world. Is it possible the whole world could be wrong and one person could be right? Antipas was right, and he lost his life for an Antipas. They took Antipas after his refusal to accept this, this offering to Caesar. And they placed him in a large brass bowl. Not, not a bowl, a bowl. It was a, a huge bowl, an idol, that had its belly hollowed out. And they heated up the bowl to incredible uh, degrees and they placed Antipas in the bowl and he fried to death. This is how Antipas died. But he was given the strength to stand. Jude tells us in Jude 24 and 25, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless and with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. He is able to make you stand, even if it's you against the whole world, even if you, like Antipas, are facing the loss of your very life. Jesus is able to make you stand. It's why we said this morning that the focus of holiness is not on our behavior, but on the Lord who is God. You want to be holy? Stop looking at yourself. 
You want to walk with the Lord, start looking at the Lord. Focusing on the Lord. Considering things about the Lord. And stop wallowing in your own self and your own behavior. And I guarantee you, God will begin to grow and develop holiness within you. And give you the strength like Antipas to stand. Faithful Antipas. And I'm sure when God saw Antipas, when he went to heaven after this to be with the Lord, he said, well done. Well done. Well done, Antipas. (laughs) That's kind of sick, isn't it? I'm sorry. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You know what? But we can laugh at that because Antipas would. He would. Looking back on a physical human body that (laughs) that was fried that was well done, that was destroyed, he could look back and with all the joy of eternity say, what a great way to go. Well done. Okay. Corrective accusation number three. Jesus now will go on in verse 14. He says, but I have a few things against you. Because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who keep teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. You also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Think about this for a moment. What's this about Balaam? And who's Balak? And and how do they play into this church? It fits perfectly with the objectionable marriage. Flip in your Bibles back to the book of Numbers in the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. The book that we're, as soon as we finish our Leviticus study on Sundays and Wednesdays, we'll be heading into Numbers. It's a fascinating book, and we'll hear these stories more clearly about Balaam and Balak. Balaam and Balak. While you're flipping to Numbers 24, let me give you the background of this greedy prophet. Balaam's an interesting character in the Bible. He's a strange seer. He's a a unique prophet. He he was a prophet. He could talk to the Lord. He he could have communication with the Lord. He could understand and hear the things of the Lord. But he was incredibly uh, greedy. He was a money grubber. And he was very self-centered. And he is a nefarious character in the Old Testament story. Balaam. Balaam at the time that Israel, again in the book of Numbers, is, is approaching the promised land. They're coming along, and the king of the Moabites was a king named King Balak. So you've got King Balak of the Moabites, and you've got Balaam, this, this prophet of sorts. And King Balak calls in Balaam, or sends a message to him and says, Hey, I want you to come and do me a favor. I hear you're a seer, that you bring oracles, that you're a prophet of sorts. I, I want to bring you in, and I want you to put a curse on this people Israel. I want you to curse Israel, and I'm going to pay you some good money to do it. And Balaam thinks, hmm, a little side job, a little extra cash. I could use that. And so Balaam goes to the Lord and says, hey, would that be alright with you? Could I go and curse Israel? Because I'm a little short on money this month. And the Lord says, no. No. You're not going to go and curse my people Israel. Oh, please, Lord. I'm, I'm, I'm really, i got to pay the bills. And so finally the Lord says, okay, go. Go on. So, you may remember the story. It's one of my favorite in the Bible. Balaam gets on his donkey. And he starts heading off to meet up with King Balak. And all of a sudden, as he's going through a vineyard with, with high walls on either side of him, the donkey crushes his foot against the wall and will not go any further. 
Well, Balaam begins, and you can read this, Numbers 22 and 23. He begins to whip his donkey. Come on, stupid beast, move, let's go. What are you doing? And finally, the donkey turns around and speaks to him. And he says, what are you hitting me for? I'm just protecting you from that angel that's about to kill us. And what's amazing about the story, Balaam talks back to the donkey. And they have a conversation. What do you mean there's an angel about you? I mean, I would have been running the other direction. You know, this donkey goes from braying to speaking. Hey, knock it off. I'm not the problem. It's the unseen angel. And suddenly, Balaam's eyes were open. He saw the angel with the sword unsheathed. And he backed off quickly. And he said, Lord, please, I, I just, I, you know, I told King Balak I was going to come. And the Lord said, all right, Balaam. You little imbecile, I added that. He said, you can go and you can meet with King Balak. But you only speak the words that I give you. You don't speak your own words. Okay, good, alright, good, great. So he gets back on the donkey. I don't know if they continue to talk on the journey. We have no record of that. But he gets finally to King Balak. And he gets up and three times... Three times he stands on a high hill overlooking Israel and he tries to proclaim a curse. He opens his mouth to curse and it's hysterical. Nothing but blessing pours out of his mouth for Israel. Okay, King, no, this time I got it. The first time was just a mistake. I got it. Okay, get some good curses here. All right. Israel's a wonderful people. They're going to be blessed the rest of their lives. Oh, no. And three times he tries to curse and he can't. He just blesses and blesses and blesses Israel. But I want you to see something here of incredible relevance. Numbers chapter 24, verses 1 and 2, tells us when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go out at other times to seek omens, but he set his face toward the wilderness. Now watch this, listen. And Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel camping, tribe by tribe, and the Spirit of God came upon him tribe by tribe he's on a high hill again he's looking down over all of Jerusalem and he sees them encamped around the tabernacle tribe by tribe look at verse 5 as he's blessing he's in the middle of this blessing this discourse in verse 5 he says how fair are your tents O Jacob your dwellings O Israel Okay, he's, he's looking down he sees all of their dwellings, their tents, around the tabernacle. He sees all of Israel down there below him. Remember, he's high up on the mountain. He's got this amazing perspective, this view. And in this blessing, as he speaks and goes on and goes on, down in verse 17, we have an amazing prophecy. Listen. Verse 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. Who, who Balaam? A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel. A scepter meaning a ruler, a king. And he shall crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be a possession. Seir, its enemies, also will be a possession. While Israel performs valiantly, one from Jacob shall have dominion, and he will destroy the remnant from the city. This greedy prophet, who is supposed to be cursing for King Balak of the Moabites, gives us an early prophecy of Jesus Christ. A star. A star will rise, will come forth of Jacob, and a scepter will rise from Israel. But this is the thing that, that absolutely amazes me. It's incredible. 
Again, going back and looking at verse 2, it tells us that Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel camping tribe by tribe. Now, if you go back to the beginning of the book of Numbers, and you begin to look at the tribes of Israel and the encampments of Israel, and I won't go into this in depth tonight, but if you look at the layout around the tabernacle from a high perspective looking down, what you would have very, very clearly seen is a cross. A cross. For as the people are camped out, and you can do the math, you can do the numbers, the people living above the tabernacle, below the tabernacle, to either side, the way God had them all encamped was a massive cross. This is what Balaam saw as he looked down on the people. And as he began to proclaim this third blessing, out comes the blessing, the prophecy of Messiah. He couldn't curse. He couldn't curse. He could only bless. Now, Balak was not happy with this. But Balaam came up with another way, another way, to mess with the people of Israel. Numbers chapter 25, verse 1 tells us, When Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. For they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel, listen to this, Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, and the Lord was angry against Israel going back to Pergamum. The teaching, the teaching of Balaam who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. Where did Balak get the idea to intermingle with Israel from Balaam? What are you talking about? Balaam said, look, the Lord's not going to let me curse. I've tried. You've seen it. I did my best. I can't open my mouth and curse this people. But you can get the people, Balak, and I'll teach you how to do it. You set up Baal. You get some of your good-looking Moabite women down there. You just start to intermingle a little bit with the people. Marry them. Get them together. Merge them. And through that process... You don't need me to curse them. You will undermine Israel. And that's exactly what happened. Israel became undermined because of the teaching of Balaam of an objectionable marriage. Israelite men with Moabite women, get them together. I object, says the Lord. My people will remain pure. His people knew not to intermarry. And yet the, the, the pressure was there. And they fell to it. It was Balaam's idea. Balaam said, Balak, here's what you do. Put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. And any Jewish person reading this would remember, reading the Revelation, would remember and think about what it was that Balaam did. And how King Balak had the better or got the better of the people of Israel back in the day. Objectionable marriages. But the objectionable marriage of Pergamum did not just belong to the historical church. For beginning around 312 A.D. and running to right around 600, it's probably more like 590, but you can round up to 600 A.D., the church began her objectionable marriage to the world, and this is the era within the church age of the compromising church. The compromising church. I'm going to give you a little history here, because this all began with the demise of the 10th wave of persecution. The 10th emperor to persecute the Christian people, a man by the name of Diocletian. Diocletian was the last of the persecuting emperors in Rome, and upon Diocletian's death, upon his death, Rome was on the brink of civil war. 
Right around 300, getting close to 310, 311, 312 A.D., Rome was in serious trouble. There were divisions everywhere, factions everywhere, and men were, were calling up armies to fight to see who the next emperor would be. One of these men, one of these men, a politically savvy, but very much an underdog type of a guy, was in trouble. He was wanting to rise to power, but he didn't have the manpower to do it. Until this politically sharp man began to realize there's a whole group of people, a specific people group in the Roman Empire who are not aligned with anyone. A people group called the Christians. You could even, if you wanted to, refer to them as the Christian right. But this man of great political savvy, this man, his name was, you may know it, Constantine. And what's amazing about Constantine's story, and in the Eastern Orthodox Church, he was, he's sainted, and they can still continue to believe him to be a saint today. But it's amazing to me, and when you think about politically what was going on, here's Constantine, and he's in trouble. He's trying to, to, to win over Rome. He really wants the seat of the emperor, but he doesn't have the manpower. And then he begins to realize, well, there are all these Christians who we've been persecuting for all these years, and they've just been growing in vast numbers. Man, what would it be if I could get them on my side, play my cards right, and have the Christians fighting with me? Interesting, right at this time, Constantine had a vision. And his vision was of a cross in the sky. And, and as he saw the cross in the sky, he saw a sign under it that said, In this sign, conquer. In this sign, conquer. And so he began going to the Christians in, in Rome at the time and saying, Look, fight with me, and I will relieve you of the persecution. I'll save you from it. But you win with me, and we, we together, we will conquer Rome. And so they fought. And the Christians bought into it hook, line, and sinker. They said, Yes, we need saving from all this persecution. Constantine, Constantine, he's our man. If he can't do it, well, he can. I'm sure he can. And so they began to follow him and fight for him. And Constantine won over and conquered Rome. And his first move in office was what's called the Edict of Toleration. It was actually around 313 A.D. The Edict of Toleration that ceased and desisted all persecution of the church and the religious right. <laughs> the Christians said, yes, we're free. Finally, the church and the state together, we can have prayer in the public schools again. And we can, we can be you know, represented in government. And it's all good. And the church became the state religion for her one-time enemy, Rome. It's amazing how things turn in history. That for 283 years Rome persecuted the church. And then upon receiving the Edict of Toleration, suddenly the church and Rome climbed into bed together. Objectionable marriage. Because that is the point in church history when the church began her demise. Satan's ploy has so often been, if you can't beat him, join him. Constantine was made a saint. His rise marks the beginning, however, of the church's descent right down into the Dark Ages, which we will talk about next week, and that's an interesting one. But here's the problem. And here's the thing that we've got to understand. Even today, and I've made some allusions, I'm, I'm playing around a little bit with you, but, but even today, what is it that Jesus said when he faced Pilate before he went up on the cross? And Pilate said, are you a king? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. 
Now, by the way, there are those who would say, well, because he says my kingdom is not of this world, he will never set up a kingdom in this world because the kingdom is not of this world. Gang, the word of is the Greek word ek. It means from or out of this world. My kingdom will not come from this world. My kingdom is not born out of this world. Gang, the church will not, will not set up the kingdom for Jesus. Other way around. Jesus will set up his church. He says, if my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. And who among the Christians fighting with Constantine remember Jesus saying, if my kingdom were of this world, it would be worth fighting for. For 283 years, the church functioned correctly, dying for Christ. Martyred for the Lord, giving up, turning the other cheek, saying, take your best shot. And in that economy, God's church exploded and grew. But not in the economy of the objectionable marriage. Constantine conquered militarily, and the Christian right fought militarily, again crying, Constantine, he is our man. But Christians, listen to me, no political leader, no matter how clean or pure or nice or righteous he may seem, no political leader is ever your man. Jesus Christ is your man. And I voted for Bush. You see, Constantine, after coming into power, did what all politicians do. He kept some promises. He told the Christians, I- I'm going to release you from this. And he did. Edict of toleration. The persecution stopped. Every infant born in Rome from that time forward was, was sprinkled, baptized according to Constantine's edict. You had to be a Christian. You didn't have a choice. It was part of living in Rome under Constantine's rule. But Constantine said, you know, we've got to meet the needs of all of our constituents. But we've got to reach out and band together and, and put our arms around each other and draw close together. Did you know the Bush White House has called for a copy of the Koran to be on display there next to the Bible? Constantine uh, produced a symbol that you can even see today in the British Archaeological Museum. It's a symbol of this awful marriage of church and state of the church and the world. It's a coin. A coin that he had minted. And on one side of the coin there is the cross. But flip the coin over and there is Jupiter, the pagan god of Rome. Same coin, two sides of one coin. Come on guys, he would have said, we've conquered, we've conquered for Christ, but we've got to meet the rest of our countrymen halfway. We've got to meet them halfway. Now remember, something else is going on in Pergamum. Something else that applies to church history, and you will begin to see here. Pergamum was the center of the Babylonian mystery religion. Mystery Babylon. You're going to read more about that here, more about that in Revelation. But you need to understand tonight that from Genesis to Revelation, Babylonian paganism is the false religion of world history. It's the one. It has been around the longest And it will remain the longest of any pagan religion. And Genesis chapter 10 is where it all began with a man named Nimrod. A hunter who set himself against the Lord, the Bible tells us. Nimrod who founded a city. You may remember its name, Babel. Later known as Babylon. He planted and he grew paganism there. And he did so with the help of his wife. Interesting story. Nimrod fell in love with a beautiful, beautiful woman 
named Semiramis. If you're taking notes, you can spell her name S-E-M-I, Semiramis, R-A-M-I-S. She ultimately became queen of Babylon, reigning with great power and wickedness. And depending on which form of the legend or the tale you read, Semiramis was said to miraculously conceive a child, either when Nimrod was away hunting or when he had been killed. But either way, she miraculously became pregnant, this Semiramis. Miraculously, she was also known to be incredibly lascivious and loose. <laughs> but it was still a miracle birth. The child's name, the child's name was Tammuz. Tammuz, T-A-M-M-U-Z. His name, by the way, remains a month on the Jewish calendar. Of the 12 months on the Jewish calendar, Tammuz is one of the most... Well, how'd that happen? Well, the Jewish calendar was named, put together, when they were in Babylonian captivity. And so out of Babylonian captivity, it's no surprise that the name of one of their months would be Tammuz, this miracle child of Semiramis, whose history draws back to the very beginnings of Babylon. But you can also find Tammuz's name in the Bible. Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 14. I'll read this to you. It says, Then he brought me to the entrance of the gate of the Lord's house, which was toward the north. And behold, women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz. Weeping for Tammuz. And God said to me, Do you see this, son of man? Yet you will see still greater abominations than these. The women, the Israelite women. They're weeping for Tammuz. What's that all about? Why would they be weeping for Tammuz? What's wrong with that? At the time of the winter solstice, around December 22nd to 25th, little Tammuz, the fabled miracle child, was like his father, fabled to have or said to have been killed by a wild boar. But incredibly, Babylonian legend maintains that three days later, Tammuz came back to life. Interesting. Miracle birth, a miracle resurrection. So what did they do? Well, to commemorate this, this wonderful, miraculous rebirth, this, this resurrection of little Tammuz, to commemorate and actually deify in this legend, they would take a log and they put it on the fire. Now this log in Babylonian and Chaldean language, the word for the log is Yule. They would place the Yule log on the fire and in this December 22nd to 25th time period, they would burn the Yule in the fireplace. Then, then as a symbol, this child log, this Yule log, was a symbol of the death of Tammuz. And then to symbolize his miraculous resurrection, they'd go outside and they would grab a nice evergreen tree and stand it up to signify the resurrection of Tammuz. Yule tied by the fireside. <laughs> Jeremiah chapter 10 verse 3, listen to this. He says, for the customs of the peoples are delusion because it is wood cut from the forest, the work of the hands of a craftsman with a cutting tool. They decorate it with silver and with gold. They fasten it with nails and with hammers so that it will not totter. Does that sound familiar to those of you who like rocking around the Christmas tree? The point of this pagan celebration was to honor and deify Tammuz. Rick, I thought I saw a Christmas tree in your house last year. Yes, you did. We'll talk about that another time. But, you, you Bible students, you've heard of Semiramis and Tammuz before. 
Even if you're not a student of the word or haven't been, some of these names will sound familiar to you. This is a legend that has been handed down from culture to culture over time in false pagan gods and goddesses. In Rome, it's the story of Venus and Cupid. In Greece, it's Aphrodite and Eris. In Egypt, it's Iris and Horus. In Phoenicia, it's Ashtaroth and Tammuz. And quite recently, if you follow the Star Wars trilogy, in Tatooine, it's Shmi and Anakin Skywalker. Now you may think I'm kidding. Watch the, the last three of the Star Wars movies. Talking about where Darth Vader came from. And the whole legend that George Lucas has figured out is that Shmi Skywalker, Anakin's mother, was miraculously found to be with child. Isn't that interesting? The connection gang of these pagan religions through history is nothing but a devilish counterfeit to God's true and wonderful plan in Jesus. And Satan will always do whatever he can to divert, to disrupt, and to destroy the plan of God. Now you might say, no, wait a minute, Rick, hang on. You're telling me this Babylonian thing with Tammuz happened all those years ago, so long before Christ? How would Satan even know? He's not omniscient like God. He doesn't have all knowledge. No, but he was there when God first pronounced the plan. In fact, Satan is the one that God told first. Did you know that? Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, the Lord God said to the serpent, as he was cursing the serpent, as he was cursing that old serpent, Satan, the devil, he says, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. Verse 15 of Genesis chapter 3, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. What? What? Her seed. Her seed. You may remember, women don't have seed. Women have eggs, men have seeds, but God proclaims miraculously, prophetically, what's called the proto-evangelicum, the first mention of the gospel. A woman will have a seed, and I will put enmity between him and you. He will bruise you on the head, you shall bruise him on the heel. Satan knew something of this plan over the years. And set out as soon as possible to divert, again, to destroy or to disrupt. And the holiday, again, of Tammuz was called Saturnalia. So, back to the epoch or era represented by Pergamum. Constantine is calling for compromise. He's saying, Christians, you've got to work with me. I've got you out of the persecution. I did everything I said I would do. Edict of toleration. Aren't we good friends? Then work with me, people. Help me out here. Let's just do a little morphing. We'll take some of these old pagan religions and we'll change them. We'll make them Christian ones. We'll, we'll keep Saturnalia, but we'll call it Christ Mass. And the Christians will have Christ Mass, and the pagans can have Saturnalia. Everybody's happy. Objectionable marriage. We'll keep the Yule Log and the stand-up trees. Some of the other symbols there, that we can use these for Christians, for Christ Mass. We'll keep the candles. You know, the pagans normally burn in their basilicas. That's what they were called, basilicas. We'll just call them St. Peter's Basilica instead, or St. Paul's Basilica. We'll keep the ornamentally red-robed priests. Interesting picture of Santa Claus, by the way. The red-robed saint. We'll keep the, the priests that, that wore those, those red robes in the pagan mystery religion, in the pagan temples. We'll keep them. We'll keep the high priest of Babylonian paganism, too. He needs a job. So instead of just kicking him out, we'll keep him. By the way, they called him in the Babylonian paganism Pontifex Maximus. 
If you have Catholic background or know anything of Catholicism, that is the name given to the Pope. Pontifex Maximus. We can't tear down the basilicas. We'll just change their names. Rename them. Oh, and by the way, there's another little holiday uh, coming up. So we're going we're gonna to kind of keep some of the pagan representation there. But we'll, we'll call it Christian. We'll, be, we'll, we'll keep the colored eggs that represent the miraculous conception of Tammuz on the holiday that, that they call Ishtar. We'll call it Easter. But we'll celebrate Christ's resurrection instead. Have I yet ruined your holiday season? Now what about that, you may ask. A little side note. What are, we, are you serious about this whole tree thing and this paganism and that's where Christmas comes from? This, I love Christmas. How can this possibly be? What do we do with this? I'll tell you next week. We're going to have to come back to that one. <laughs> but the objectionable marriage is all about spiritual compromise for, listen to this, political power. Get the Moabite women and the Israelites together. Get the church and the state and the paganism. Get it together. Objectionable marriage. Because that way you can undermine. By the way, you remember the Nicolaitans? Talked about them last week. Nico from the, the word where we get the word Nike, meaning power. Laetans, meaning the people, the common people. Power over the people. And Jesus says in verse 15, You also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. What is that teaching? Well, part of it, power over the people. Hierarchy in pagan religion. Hierarchy. Power of the priesthood over the laity. The laity can't possibly understand these things on their own. They need us priests to explain it to them. They have to rely on us to bring it to them. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 tells us there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. One mediator. And no man has the right to be that for you. So we come down here to verse 16 and Jesus shifts gears to a practical recommendation. Verse 16 he says, therefore repent or else I am coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Who are them? Those who hold to the teachings of Balaam, corrupting the pure faith of Jesus Christ by objectionable marriage, by mixture, by putting the way with the world, the truth with the tainted. Now eventually, interestingly, Balaam was killed. Do you want to hear how he was killed? Joshua 13 verse 22 tells us the sons of Israel killed Balaam, the son of Beor, the diviner, with the sword. And I am coming to those who hold the teachings of Balaam with the sword of my mouth and I will divide this objectionable marriage. Jesus comes with his sword against all who would marry the pure faith of God's true word with the philosophies and the politics and the principles of this world. I'm bringing the sword, Jesus says. For again, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. My practical recommendation to you, Pergamum, objectionable marriage, the practical recommendation is repent. Stop trying to be like the world. Some of you know this. I think the thing that upsets me most about the church today is how hard the church is working to look like the world. Church buildings that, that look like offices, 
uh, churches taking down all the, 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 the quote-unquote trappings and traditions of religion. You know what? A lot of the trappings and traditions of religion are garbage anyway, and I understand that. But trying not even to use biblical words, avoiding being the church, so that we can somehow gain access to the world. And it just doesn't work. It's an objectionable marriage. Pulling the two together. You never, ever save a person by becoming like the world. You save people by being unique, by seeking holiness, by pursuing the Father. And in looking different, people ask, people want to know, well, what's up with that? I want some of that. Can, can, I, can I see what's going on there? Matt, who some of you saw this morning, who, who was baptized just today, after being here for a couple of weeks from Boston, comes in the door two weeks ago, and he said the very first thing, and I'm not, by the way, touting the bridge, but the Holy Spirit, who is here and was there that morning, and he said, I couldn't believe it, I walked in the door, and the first thing I felt was God's Spirit was here. And that's what grabbed his attention. Not the big cross on the wall, not the stained glass, not the beautifully ornate pews. Not the religious way of doing things. But God's Spirit. God's Spirit was here. He was here. Well, Jesus now will give an eternal motivation in verse 17. He says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. Even this would speak to the people in historical Pergamum. Even this speaks directly to the people in historical prophetical Pergamum. 83, 12 to 600. He gives three specific things, three mysterious promises. Interesting because this would speak to someone in Babylonian paganism because they were very into mystery. Jesus says, you want a mystery? I got three of them for you. I will give you hidden manna. Hidden manna. In other words, satisfaction. I will give you satisfaction in the inner part of who you are. I will fill you in a way no Balaam or Balak or Moabitess could I will bring you satisfaction. Jesus said in John 6.48, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I'll give you satisfaction, that hidden manna. I will give you a white stone. A white stone. Satisfaction with the bread of manna. Justification with the white stone. What do you mean? This goes way back to a system of voting among jurors in John's day and in ancient times. Where they would literally vote with black and white stones. Not having a full jury. They would have a panel of judges. And the vote for being saved, justified, freed, or sent to prison or condemned to murder was a white stone or a black stone. We still have the phrase today being blackballed. And so if the judge were to put in into the pot a black stone, that meant you're dead. But if the judge would put in a white stone, you were justified, you were saved. Jesus says, I have a white stone for you. I've got a white stone, a stone of justification. One more thing interesting about this white stone, it had a secondary meaning to it. The secondary meaning was it was used as a ticket to a special feast. A ticket to a feast. 
The white stone meaning acquittal. Romans 5 verse 8 and 9. God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Justification, the white stone. But it was also invitation. An invitation to a special feast. Revelation 19.7 tells us, let's rejoice and be glad. Then give the glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. I'll give you a hidden manna. Satisfaction. A white stone, both justification and or invitation. And finally, I'm going to give you a new name. A new name. I look forward to the new name. Because the old one bears all the marks of sin in my life. I'm known by this name. Everything I've ever done. People in my past who I've hurt, I hurt with this name, but Jesus says, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you a new name. I love the way he says it. It's a new name written on the stone, which no one knows, but he who receives it. It's our secret name. The name just between you and me, a new name marking your individuation. Someone had asked, you know, when we get to heaven, with all the throngs of people worshiping God and worshiping around the throne. And we see these massive, especially in Revelation, these massive scenes of worship. The question's been asked, am I going to get any one-on-one time with Jesus? Am I going to, you know, just be able to walk with Him? Just me and Him, maybe one afternoon in the garden together? Can we stroll the streets of New Jerusalem, just me and the Lord? Hey, guess what? You're going to have a name that only you and Jesus know. And when Jesus calls that name, you'll hear it. No one else will hear it. They're all thinking, listening for their names. And you'll go, excuse me, I've got to go be with the Lord. You had a little appointment. A special, individuating name. Wow. Well, as we'll see next week, the Babylonian mystery religion was all about the mysterious. All about, in Greek, it's called the bathos. The hidden things. The deep things. They love to get into the mysterious because the more unknown it is, the more confusing it is, the more you can distort and you can keep one step ahead of the people. And Jesus says, let me bring you the hidden man. Feed you. The white stone justify and invite you. The new name and make you special and unique with me. I will give you all these things. Stick with me and I'll do one better. I'll give you revelation. Revelation. Anybody, by the way, who stands up and tells you that the things of Scripture are too mysterious to understand as a common person, you really need some time and, and you know, seminary study, don't listen to them. Scriptures are for everybody. Not just for those who would deem themselves to be wiser or more schooled or studied. One last thought. In a time where the separation of church and state is a topic of such hot debate, when politics and Christianity are already, and I will say this with all honesty, dangerous bedfellows, in this time we need to be more aware of the heart of God than ever before. For gain no political party. No platform, no senator or representative or even president can ever measure up to the gospel of Jesus Christ. No man can bring that for you. Now I'm not saying you shouldn't have political convictions. I'm not saying that you shouldn't engage in the process. What I am saying is that the Lord has a specific and extremely powerful role for the church. Both in times of persecution like Smyrna and in times of peace like Pergamum, regarding the nation that we are in. Two things to jot down and we're done tonight. 
The first thing is that God has a plan for us. He is calling us to avoid falling prey. To avoid falling prey to the politicians. Rather, He wants us to fall and pray for the politicians. Fall and pray for them. Whether, by the way, you voted for them or not. You may have voted for Kerry and still be clinging to your bumper sticker, you know? And if that's the case, guess what, Christian? You have an obligation to pray for Bush. You may have voted for Bush, and you have an obligation to vote for Bush. One thing that I think the Christian community kind of missed during the eight years of of Clinton's time in office was the opportunity to pray for our political leaders. He needed prayer. Boy, did he need prayer. Avoid falling prey to politicians, fall and pray for them. Romans chapter 13 verse 1. Paul wrote, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Romans 13.11, he said, do this, knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believe. The night is almost gone, the day is near. Paul wrote that to the Roman church during the persecutions of Nero. The Roman church had to accept that word as from the Lord. Pray for your politicians. Pray for your governing authorities. You want me to pray for Nero who just massacred my entire family? Yes. That is the power that you have. Pray for them. Pray for them. Pray for them. And number two... Not just pray for the politicians, but pray literally, listen to this, for the welfare of your country. Pray for the welfare of your country. I want to read one last verse to you, Jeremiah chapter 29 in verse 4. Before I read this to you, I, I want to encourage you to keep your eyes open to what's going on in the world around us. I was just talking with Aaron and Kelly today about it. It is fascinating to be living in these times where the Bible is so immediately applicable to world events and what's going on. Thursday of this last week, some of you may know that President Bush met with Mahmoud Abbas, the Palestinian Prime Minister. And coming out of that meeting, the Palestinians were hoping at that time that, that there would be a great push against Israel. That the United States and the quartet would place more pressure on Israel to give up land. Let me just be clear about this. It has never been the intention of the Palestinian Authority to gain their own state. Only to destroy and and completely disintegrate Israel. How do you know that, Rick? Because at one point, um, Yasser Arafat was offered 98%, nearly 99% of all of the land that they wanted and walked away from the table. It's not about the land. It's about destroying Israel. And so the Palestinians went in there hoping for this. The the Jewish people, the the, uh, Israelis, were hoping that out of this there would be more pressure put on Palestine. And coming out of this meeting, President Bush stood up to the podium and he said, by the time I am through with my term in office, there will be a Palestinian state. This from the same president who said, we will not support countries who perform acts of terror or harbor terrorists. Have you read about Gaza recently? It is a, a terrorist stronghold. It is completely overrun by Hamas. What's wrong here? President Bush talks about, I want to, have, to establish a, an attitude of life. That's not the phrase he uses. What's the phrase? Anybody know this? 
Um, I don't remember. A culture. That's it. A culture of life. I want a culture of life, uh, you know, conveying the pro-life platform of the Republican Party and of most Christian people. I want a culture of life for this country. And yet we are engaged with Palestine that is promoting a culture of death. Well, I won't say any more about that right now. But I will read the following. Uh, Israel was in Babylon. Israel was in captivity and exile in Babylon for 70 years. And listen to what the Lord tells them. He says in verse 4 of Jeremiah 29. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them and plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. Verse 7, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you in exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. What, Lord? Pray for Babylon? Yes. Pray for Babylon. Why? For its welfare. In its welfare, you will have welfare. Pray for America. For the welfare of America is your welfare. But know that just like Babylon... We're here for a short time. Not for a long time. We are here on borrowed time. We are foreigners and aliens living in a distant land. And God wants to invite us home where he has the hidden manna. Where he offers the white stone and the new names. That day is coming and it's coming upon us fast. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you will... Oh, Lord, just give us the ability to take in all these things. And, Father, if any of these things we find upsetting or disturbing, that you will just give us time over this next week to ponder them, knowing that next week will be more disturbing. (laughs) But, God, we just pray for the blessing of the study of your word and the study of truth, that we may know how to live rightly before you. In Jesus' name. Amen.